Hello everybody and welcome to episode number 131 of the Rewatch Project with Hannah and Mike. I am Mike and with me as always is Hannah. How are you this Friday evening, Hannah? I am spent. I am ready for it to be past Christmas. I'm ready for the kids to be off school. And if I get asked to do one more job for the kids, I think I'm going to crack. I'm not ready for it to be past Christmas though, because Christmas is the payoff. I don't know. Stuff. I don't know if that's the payoff. It doesn't feel like it's going to be the payoff. <laughs> okay, well we'll uh, we'll report back. If at the very least we will have more time to record podcasts, so we're going to uh, look on the uh, the bright side of that. Indeed. We'll have plenty of uh, podcasting time. Uh, but tonight we are continuing on with uh, the third of our fourth sorbet selections, where we are picking some. Um, non-Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. content to cover, just to cleanse the palate before we return to cover the penultimate season of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, Tonight, though, what are we talking about, Anna? We are talking about the film from 1984, Terminator. Uh, Synopsis for anyone who's lived under a rock and does not know Terminator. A human soldier is sent from 2029 to 1984 to stop an almost indestructible cyborg killing machine sent from the same year, which has been programmed to execute a young woman whose unborn son is the key to humanity's future salvation. It is directed and written by James Cameron, um, written also by Gail Ann Hurd. Okay. Uh, So, yes, 1984. Great year. Great year for movies. Great year for music. Really rich pop culture year, 1984. Always surprising that it was that long ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll get into this when we talk about it. But um, the thing I think people forget about The Terminator is that, um, you know, it was a B-movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it, in many ways, it was a uh, – I mean, Cameron came out of the Corman School. Uh, I mean, the big, the main thing he'd really done before Terminator, I mean, he directed Piranha 2. Um, you know, the electric the, boogaloo, <laughs> the sequence of a Joe Dante film, you know, so he very much came out of that world. Um, I mean, he, um, he started off really, uh, in special effects. He did special effects for a lot of Corman's films, most notably the film that, for, that Cameron really kind of made his mark was he did, he was the main designer on Battle Beyond the Stars, which was Roger Corman's attempt at Star Wars. It was a Star Wars right. knockoff. And um, it's interesting when you watch that film, knowing that you can see a lot of James Cameron's aesthetic in Battle Beyond the Stars, like the um, the drop ships from Avatar, which are also very similar to a lot of the ships he used in Aliens and in the future sequences in The mm. Terminator. You can see a lot of that. Um, the other thing really was that as well as being a B-movie, a sci-fi B-movie, uh, The Terminator really existed as part of the slasher movie Subgenre, yeah, you know. Um, I mean, uh, the Terminator had as much in common with Jason Voorhees and Mike Myers. You know, mm. he was a boogeyman, he was a sort of um, and I don't mean he was into disco. Um, he was, you know, somebody who, um, <laughs> the uh, compassionate Arnie, uh, <laughs> um, I'm not gonna try <laughs> that's how they arranged that one is, but um, I'll leave that to the theater of the mind, shall I? But um. Yeah, so this film came out of all of these these sort of things, and obviously there was there was Arnie as well. But anyway, I mean, this this is um, this is your pick, Hannah. 
It is um, indeed. Before we get into a little bit of housekeeping, um, what was your thinking behind this? Uh, my thinking was I wanted to choose two things for my sorbet picks, which had a strong female character. Which is good because all of my picks have got dumb, weak women. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I figured uh, <laughs> I figured it would be a nice but I'm just kidding, they haven't. It's all balance, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Um, and uh, my last pick... Conan the Barbarian was suggested by one of our listeners, Silver yep. Surfer. I thought this would go nicely with it. It's it's also being an Arnie. It, thing well, it's a well. coincidence that it's an Arnie film. Yeah. Um, it's not why I chose it. Um, I like Sarah Connor as a character. Yeah, yeah and, think, and it's interesting because I think she has a strength, and especially in this one. And obviously, we'll get into talking about it, but because this is the first one, there's. There's a a strength and also a big vulnerability to her. Well, she's very much in the the mould of the final girl trope from mm. horror movies, whether yeah. that be um, Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street or um, Laurie Strode, most famously from the Halloween films. You know, the, the character who seems vulnerable but um, is emboldened through yeah. the action and kind of comes through the fire. And it's interesting as well because the, the Terminator as well, as well as being this B-movie, of course, it was it spawned a franchise, you know? Yeah. Um, and the franchise is interesting because it's one of those franchises, a little bit like the Planet of the Apes films and a little bit like the Halloween films where there's lots of sort of tributaries and avenues and tangents on it, you know? like So, for example, you've got, I mean, Christ... It feels a little bit like that scene in Back to the Future 2 where Doc Brown's got the chalkboard out and he's explaining to Marty all of the yeah. different sort of timelines, you know? Because if you think about it, you've got that... I'm probably going to get this wrong, but the way I remember it is you've got the original... And I really do feel like I need a chalkboard for this. You've got the original Terminator. Then you had a sequel to that, um, Terminator 2. Mm-hmm. Then that had a sequel, Terminator 3, The Rise of the Machines. Yeah. Then there was the Terminator TV series, right. which ignored Terminator 3 and was a sequel to Terminator 2. Right. Then you had Terminator Salvation, which right. was a sequel to Terminator 3. And then you had Terminator Genesis, which was a sequel to that. Uh-huh. But then you had Terminator Dark Fate, which ignored everything except for Terminator and Terminator 2. Right. So there's loads of different ways you can watch this franchise. There's three different... And obviously, you know, there's time travel involved, so you could probably, you know, Wizards did it, hand wave it away yeah, if you wanted to. But it is interesting. And one thing I'd like to do... And, and the, the funny thing is, I think that the Terminator, apart from Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, it's always struggled as a franchise because it's not inherently designed to be one. It's no. just that the films were so successful, yeah. particularly the second one. Having said that, I found, and this is a controversial statement because I don't think a lot of people agree with this, on some level or or other, I actually enjoy all of the films, all of the Terminator films. I don't think any of them dip below a seven. Mm. I, I, I saw the third one. I went to the cinema to see the third one. It was it was okay. The third I didn't one just enjoy feels like it as much as the first two. The, the, the third one just feels like a slightly lesser version of the second one. 
Mm. You know, the fourth one, you know, salvation. At least they tried to do something different. I didn't see. I haven't seen the fourth one or or the fifth one, Genesis. Yeah, I, I'd recommend them. I mean, what would be really interesting would be to actually watch the James Cameron trilogy. To watch mm. the Terminator, Terminator Two, and then Terminator Dark Fate. Dark Fate which was was, um, was really good. You know, which which really was designed to be a sequel to Terminator Two. That was you know. really good. And I'll be curious to see how that hangs together as a trilogy. Yeah. Um, but really, the, I think the thing that's interesting about the Cameron films, the, the, the you know, Terminator, Terminator 2 and Dark Fate, he didn't direct the third, sorry, Dark Fate, but he was, that was the first one he was creatively involved in since mm. the second. The thing that's interesting is that when you watch those three, as opposed to watching, you know, the Terminator 3 mm. and Salvation and Genesis is... If you watch the three Cameron films, it's Sarah Connor's story. Yeah, it is. She's the through line. She is. Whereas yeah. she's not in any of them after the second one in the other strand of films. No, yeah. Um, so it is interesting to see that, um, you know, say what you will about James Cameron, but if you look at his films like The Abyss and Aliens, you know, he does have strong female characters at a time when it wasn't even fashionable to do that, yeah. you know. But, yeah, so, I mean, it's an, in- it's an interesting franchise. Um couple of quick bits of housekeeping. What I'm going to suggest, if you're a first-time listener, if you're here to listen to us discuss Terminator, uh, The Terminator, then I would recommend that you take a look down either at your phone, where we'll have some timings, or if it's on YouTube, skip forward a chapter. Um, we're going to do a little bit of feedback, and um, this will be about various other bits of business that may not be relating to Terminator. If you would like to send us feedback, which we do encourage you to do, you can do so at rewatchprojectpodcast at gmail.com or you can interact with us via our YouTube page. You can just leave us comments there. Um, And please also take a look at our Instagram and Twitter accounts, which are at rewatchproj. That's rewatchproj. Apple Podcasts and Spotify reviews appreciated, as is checking out our friend shows, namely Chinstroker vs. Punter, Film Bastards, His Film, Her Movie, Entertainment Landfill, Talk About Rhythm podcast and The Good, The Bad and The Odd. So, Hannah, do we have any feedback? We do. Um, it is all related to our last Sorbet episode on the pilot episode of Millennium. Oh, okay. First comment from Michael Sanders. Uh, completely disagree about the early Scully comment. Gillian Anderson was way over her head and it shows in the early seasons of The X-Files. Okay, respectfully disagree. What I would say, I can can kind of see where that's coming from, but what I would say is what I think that that listener is seeing is there were certain episodes that were written by non-staff writers where I think that they didn't understand the character of Scully. So I think that what happened was you've got all of the episodes written by Chris Carter and Howard Gordon and various people who would stick around, but you see a lot of episodes that are written by people who come in obviously don't quite get the show and, to put it nicely, aren't asked back. Mm. So they don't become part of the show. But then what Chris Carter, the showrunner, does is he accumulates writers who do work. And there are some of the early writers who don't quite get Scully. Like they, a lot of them kind of write her as being sort of quite emotionally frumpy, like quite square. Uh, or and a bit feeble. Yeah, or, or just being pig-headedly, Skeptical, mm. and I think that in those episodes, Gillian Anderson does as good as she could. But I think that that saying Gillian Anderson was out of her depth in the first season is factually incorrect because if you look at episodes like Ice and Beyond the Sea and Deep Throat, she's fantastic. 
Yeah. Uh, but she's only as good as the material. Um, and I think that David Duchovny gets equally served poorly in some episodes of the first season, but because his character's allowed to have a sense of humour and because his character's got... He's, he's kind of the cool parents mm. because he's the believer, it's not as a parent. So um, respectfully disagree. Uh, I disagree as well, but I welcome the uh, differing opinion. Mm, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yep. Um, and the other thing I think maybe I'm is... for it. That we were saying that in relation to um, Millennium well, as well. So I suspect maybe as well that this listener might be a big Millennium fan. Maybe. Um, and, um, yeah. Um, I I just love Gillian Anderson. Mm. I thought she um, did a great no, job. I think she's great. I think the character of Scully is slightly off in a couple of early episodes, but I don't think that's anything to do with Gillian Anderson. No. Um, okay. Also... On, oh, okay. So this comment was is in relation to our Millennium episode, but it's about some feedback that we read um, oh, from Jack okay. Dubs. Uh, okay, so Jack Dubs says, "My big sister was a fan of Twin Peaks and used it. Uh, sorry, and used to. Oh, sorry. Can I just stop you right there? Uh, I've I've known what this is about. Mm. We were talking on the episode about um, how um, he." was looking for an excuse to watch his Twin Peaks box set. Yeah. And I, I said, I've, uh, could he clarify whether he's just not watched that box set before yep. or whether he's not watched Twin Peaks before? Right. So that's okay. what this so is in reference to. This is the clarification. My big sister was a fan of Twin Peaks and used to watch it on BBC Two when they aired it back in the early 90s. I caught the occasional episode, but as I was a mere 12-year-old boy at the time, I was a wee bit, it was a wee bit too out there for me. So I've seen some episodes, but I have never watched the original series the whole way through, nor have I dipped my toe into either the movie Fire Walk With Me or the recent-ish revival series. So that means then that Jack must be about 44, 45 because um, yeah, I was sef- I, I never watched Twin Peaks when it um, originally I, I was 17 when Twin Peaks first came out which is I think the in many ways the perfect age to first see Twin okay, Peaks okay so I was 11 yeah so yes yeah no. um, good well I mean I, I think you would um, yeah I think you'd really enjoy it yep absolutely um, okay he goes on to say on the subject at hand Millennium I both love it and hate it at the same time. When Millennium was good, it was great. But when Millennium was bad, it was near unwatchable. As a teen, I used to watch the show every week with my dad. It was our little bonding session. But he only liked the police procedural element. Once it went weird in season two, he lost interest and that was that. He just stopped watching. He might have liked the format change in season three where they made the show very x filesy but season two ruined it for him, and a bit for me too, if I was completely honest. Yeah, because I remember correctly, there's this insane, there's like a plague storyline. And in season three, he's given a female partner, and it's basically the X-Files with Frank Black. Right. It's really, really similar. But uh, I, I think I've only, I've only seen all of season one. And then I remember when they did the final episode of Millennium, which is an episode of the X-Files, where they, they finish it off. They released it as a rental video, which was the fi- and the, and what they did was they had it was the final three episodes of the final season of Millennium, and the final episode of the X Files sort of edited together into like a movie. 
Right. And I remember watching that and thinking, no, that was really enjoyable. But I don't think I've seen any of the second season or the third season, apart from that ending one. But there's a, two or three key episodes that were written by Darren Morgan, who's that reclusive writer who occasionally would come out to write mm. for episodes of The X-Files. And he, he, the only other time he's come out of retirement after that, because he's very sought after, but he's a bit of a kook, he came out of retirement and he wrote an episode of Fringe. Uh, that I think that was the only other thing that he'd done. Um, who's obsessed with that girl? You know the one where the guy who was in Andor. You know uh, the um, the one about the the nervous guy who oh the, yeah, the yeah 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 yeah. I think he wrote that one right. Um, but uh, so I came back and watched the episodes he wrote of that because they I won't say anything because it'll spoil the X Files for you. But a quite prominent character from the X Files was in those episodes, so I watched those as an X Files fan and thought they were really enjoyable. But so uh, that's interesting to hear. Mm. Uh, his final comment. Uh, he his final message says, "Final comment. In saying all of that, Millennium had some absolutely fantastic episodes dotted through throughout its three season run. Yeah, yeah, and so that's a very Chris Carter thing. So, think about Chris Carter. To his credit, he takes really big swings. Yeah, um, and they don't always work, but sometimes they do. Well, that's the thing about the creative process. Yeah. It's you know you." Not everything is going to stick. Well, I mean, uh, every episode doesn't mean you can't be creative with it. Yeah, I mean, every season of the X Files has two or three absolutely bonkers. Apart from the first season, has absolute two or three absolutely bonkers episodes, and they don't always work. But Mm. you you kind of admire them. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, Okay. Thank you for that feedback, Jack. Yeah, feedback, Jack, and the feedback, Jack, feedback, and Jack, Silver Surface says. <laughs> so uh, we're going to um, hit pause. We're going to watch um, Terminator from nineteen eighty four, and then we will come back and review, riff on, and react to it. So see you shortly. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, and welcome to Film Bastards, a podcast where three friends, two of them married and two of them podcasting life partners, chat everything from new releases, trailers, news, and an eclectic mix of other film goodies over many, many, many tangents. You can find them by searching your podcast provider or check them out on Twitter and Instagram by searching Film Bastards. You never know, you might like it. And if you don't, well, we don't really give a f- Okay, so we have just this moment finished watching The Terminator from 1984. Um, This was your pick, Anna. So uh, before we get into breaking the film down and talking about memorable moments, uh, what are your initial thoughts on this rewatch? This is a 10 out of 10 film for me. It's it's just so well-paced and... Uh, great performances and yeah I just I love it start to finish it's it's such I mean it's a classic for a reason Mm. Um, and I think Linda Hamilton is incredible in this film um, as is Arnold Schwarzenegger Mm. and uh, I can never remember the guy who plays Kyle Reese Michael Bean Michael Bean yeah just fantastic what about you I agree I mean this is a great example of talent will out. It was it was an Orion movie. They were that they weren't like Corman or Charles Band or one of those, but they were they made movies for drive-ins, you know, they made yeah. movies that were never gonna be blockbusters. 
and that might make their money back in the you know what was then the relatively new video rental market. But Cameron was such a talent, such a prodigious talent, that it just shone through. And you know, you can tell that. I get the feeling that maybe when he got this gig, when he managed to you know hustle to get this film made, nobody had any real expectations. But he made this film like he was making a hundred dollar, hundred million dollar movie. You know, yeah. And you can see, you can see that it's it's like you know, if a band's good enough, it doesn't matter whether they're recording. In a, on on a shitty tape recorder or in the best studio in the world, it'll come through. And I think this film is a great example of that. Yeah. And the the thing I always forget about this film is how tremendously influential it was. Yeah, extremely. And, and on like four or five different levels, visually, aesthetically, from a genre perspective, some of the science fiction ideas. Mm. A lot of the tone, the um, – I mean, we'll get into it when we break it down, but I just think you can see so much of what would happen in mainstream cinema in the 10 or 15 years. I think the only other film, really, from a genre perspective of this era that comes close to being as influential as this is James Cameron's Aliens. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, the visual effects alone – um, obviously now you can see them a mile away. Oh, and yeah, then, yeah. And but, you can see that they're low budget. Yeah, but I kind of like on – okay, so I've got two things about it. Firstly, for the time, they were super impressive. Well, they're creative and they're very, ambitious. Very creative. I think that's the thing. Very ambitious. And, and you know, they work. And on a rewatch of it, given the sensibilities of now and – you know, how much visual effects has come on. It's actually kind of awesome to be able to see it and go, oh, cool, they use stop stop motion here. I, and, I'd, oh. I'd rather watch that than Avatar, which is yeah. perfect, mm. you know? Yeah, like um, all of the, the scenes where Arnie's, like, got prosthetic makeup on mm -hmm. and you know they're showing his his the um skin decaying on his yeah. body and things like that it was all fantastic yeah. and and really um just interesting on a, on a different level to be able to see it and enjoy it and and kind of pick those things apart and go oh cool they did it this way and if you look at the other know, films that were very influential particularly science fiction, horror, fantasy films around the era, they were all big, much bigger budget films than Terminator. I mean, if you look at the original Alien, mm. um, Star Wars is another obvious one, Blade Runner, all those films that would have, and I guess, you know, if you jump forward another 10 or 15 years, The Matrix. Mm. It is interesting that James Cameron's one of those people, a little bit like George Lucas, where you can see that he always had this proximity to these technological leaps. Mm. You know, I mean, George Lucas, obviously, you know, you had the, the invention of the motion control camera. Um, yeah. You know, the work that Lucasfilm did on Jurassic Park, for example. But also Cameron, you've got to give him credit. The Abyss, Terminator 2, mm. Avatar, like it or not, yeah. it, that film did really push things forward in a, on a lot of different levels. And the thing about Cameron is he gets a lot of shit because he's very... 
sure of himself. You could say he's arrogant, mm. but you know, god damn it, um, there's a reason. There's Plus, re- I think if you're a director, you have to be sure of well, yourself. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the one leading the charge. Well, if you're not behind what you're doing, yeah. then who else is going to be? You don't get meek visionaries. No. They, I think the only difference with Cameron... And that doesn't mean that I like everything that he does. No, no, I mean, but, 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 but I just yeah. think that Cameron doesn't pretend to be anything that he's not. But, I mean, but those films, I mean, particularly, I think, really, his, his biggest achievements, I mean, forgetting commercial, I think... If you look at the, the it, it almost works as a trilogy: the mm. the the first Terminator, the Abyss, and Aliens. Those three films they share a lot of cast. You know, I mean, Michael Bean. Did he obviously. have a? Did he have kind of a thing for Bill Paxton? Yeah, Bill Paxton is in nearly all of his films. They're really good yeah. friends. I mean, he's in True Lies, of course, and yeah, you know, and well, Titanic. Titanic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but um, Aliens, you know, um, and came over a man. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, and I think that the – I mean, let's get into it because, I mean, most of the points that I've got are attached to sort of yeah. particular moments in the film. But um, but, I, but I do think that it is interesting that that so much of what people love – a lot of the time when people think of The Terminator, they're actually thinking about Terminator 2 because mm. that film was so big and it was so ubiquitous. But yeah. everything – like the hustle of Easter baby, yeah, exactly, and, all that kind of uh, and you know the Guns and Roses song and yep. all that stuff. Yeah, but the everything that's good in the Terminator films is all there in the yeah. first one. It's it's almost as though it's the it's like the founding documents. Really does have that horror um, structure. Yeah, and, and, and the the I mean, right down to the death fake outs, and also the. The kind of John Carpenter esque sort of synthy score, yeah, as well. That feels very and I mean, much like like Halloween three, the season of the witch. You I've, know, that. I've said before how much I am not a horror person, but the structure can be quite interesting. Yeah. if like um, if I'm not being absolutely the bejesus. Uh, uh, well, slasher films are in many ways have more in common with action movies mm. than they do have in common with straight horror. Yeah. Because really what slasher movies are is they're thrill rides, they're roller coasters. Yeah. So I think the slasher films almost exist in that kind of Spielbergian kind of realm of just thrill rides. Yeah. You know, the haunted house kind of things. And also there's slasher movies, as, as weird as it sounds, have a kind of almost escapism quality to them because yeah. there's nothing... Um, you don't watch a Friday the Thirteenth film and then get worried about locking your door at night no. because it's so absurd. Mm. You know, no more than than you'd finish watching Close Encounters of a Third Kind and worry about getting abducted by aliens. You know, there's, yeah. there's, there's that there's a distance between you and the film that that is reassuring. You know, yeah. Um, but uh, well, let's get into it. Let's get yeah. into it. I keep saying we're going to do that, but uh, so. Uh, um, the I'm going to mention the Orion logo at the beginning. That was just one of those great ubiquitous nostalgia trip. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we opened up in LA in 2029, the not so futuristic 2029. Yeah, it's only well just over, just under seven years away. Oh yeah, I mean, I was like, I was watching a. Um, I work from home today, so I I had a lunch of uh, beans on toast with melted cheese in the beans, of course, uh, cheesy beans. <laughs> um, and I watched an episode of the original Star Trek, 
and they were talking about mad futuristic stuff in 1996. <laughs> it's like, my goodness. Um, my last year of high school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, straight away, though, you, when you, you see this uh, future sequence, you see a lot of the central motifs of James Cameron's aesthetic, the drop ships that he uses, are very similar to the ones that, you, that you'll see later in Avatar and not so later in Aliens as well. Yeah. But also very similar in design to a lot of the work that he did do for Corman. I think it was Corman um, for uh, things like Battle Beyond the Stars uh, and, and those movies as well. Yeah. Um, and the other thing as well, just these, these future sequences, it's interesting. A couple of things. First of all, there's a lot more of them than I remember there being. It's funny you say that. I was about to say the same thing. Two, two things or two about this is there's a lot more of those and there's a lot more stuff with the cops than I remember. Yeah. Yeah, um, way more. Like the the future stuff, especially. I I at the time was thinking. I always forget that there's I extended that sequences. They sort aren't of flash back to it or flash forward to it yeah. quite a lot. I mean, I yeah. thought it was literally just one two minute sort of sequences. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I like about it as well is that it shows how much more audacious people were about science fiction in the eighties. Because when we see when we get to Terminator Salvation, which is the one that's set during this era. It's much less sci-fi-ish, like the guns are just machine guns. Right. Whereas this is proper pew-pew, blue oh, laser beams, so. kind of. Yeah. And I think it's a bit of a shame that now in this post, because Terminator Salvation aesthetically has probably got more in common with films like Black Hawk Down yeah. and that kind of post-Desert Storm 2, night vision goggles, CNN yeah. war aesthetic. But but that, I thought that was interesting. The fact that when you see this, it's like it's proper science fiction. And I, I like Terminator Salvation, but I still feel that we've yet to get a film that completely delivers on the promise of the future war that we saw at the beginning of this. I do think that on in Terminator Dark Fate, when they have the flash forwards, they feel much more of a piece with yeah. this. Uh, it feels very much just like that, but with just twenty nineteen special effects, mm. you know. Uh, so I quite I quite like that um, in in that regard. And again, one of the things that's amazing about James Cameron is he really knows how to create a memorable image. Yeah. Um, like, and there's so many in this field. The first one is the uh, the skulls being crushed. Yeah. You know, the, the, if you want to have an image which shows industrial malevolence um, in an eye-catching way. And I always feel that if James Cameron hadn't been a filmmaker, he would have been an incredible graphic artist or marketing designer. Like, like I I could imagine him doing great ad campaigns. Yeah, very iconic in in his visual language. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It really kind of encapsulates, it can can encapsulate a concept. I did think, though, why the fuck would you be fighting for that world? I'd want to have been exterminated and see you later. I'm (laughs) in my fluffy white cloud to, you know, I don't know, sit there and play a harp or something. Yeah, yeah. I do like the fact that when the sequence ends and you get the, um, you know, the, the text on the screen, it's like, you know, this will get fought and out tonight. Yeah, you know, that's a very 1984 thing. And then we're in 1984. We see Arnie appear uh, in the nude. He does the eye turn Quite the thing. specimen as well. Oh, well, I mean, that's the thing is Arnie. And I think it's funny that when he when he first appears, he's almost in like the thinker position. He's kneeling yeah. down. Yeah. And it's like, I think it's, he looks like a statue. I do think it's funny when he's on the side though. And I just thought, God, it'd be funny if like, his balls were hanging down. <laughs> 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 but, but I mean, I bet at that age, 
I bet he had yeah. very. They would have been nice and I don't know high. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. He would, round he would, his knees now. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I suppose if if you did it now, they'd be like, Arnie, I think you need some kind of uh, support <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for uh, for those. Um, so, uh, but he does the eye turn thing as well. The um, you know, where I mentioned this in the Conan thing, where he'll turn his eyes towards something and then turn his head, and it yeah. gives him this sort of, you know, this machine. And sort of malevolent look about him. Yeah. Mm. And, um, but I did actually have that in my in my notes, by the way. Kneeling, no balls. <laughs> I wanted to make sure I remember that <laughs> uh, um, We see Bill Paxton as a street tough. And as I said to you at the time, it, it did make me chuckle a little bit that the street toughs are all stargazing yeah like they're so hard yeah they are aren't with they? their with their colored hair and their tire mark on their face and their zips <laughs> so he he and this is a moment where there's so many of these of the beats from this film are repeated because that's the thing i've said before that this film kind of resists being a franchise because it needs to have that john carpenter-esque nihilistic ending where everything's uncertain and she drives off into the storm mm. all you can really ultimately do in terminator sequels is kind of remake it. Yeah. And with the possible exception of Terminator Salvation, as much as I enjoy them, all of the Terminator sequels are kind of reimaginings of this film. Yeah. Right down to he appears, he has to kill someone to get the clothes. Um, there's a little bit of fish out of water fun with him not understanding how to be human. Mm. Um, you've usually got the the ambiguous ending, um, the thinking they're dead but then coming back. Mm. Uh, all of these sort of things crop up in the later ones, but they're all there. They're all here. Yeah. You know, the only thing that changes is the technology that they have at their disposal to to produce the films, yeah. you know? Yeah, We see the lightning uh, appear again and Reese appears. And interesting, you were saying about how Arnie is in pose when he lands and how Reese is just – he's just – Collapsed All on buggered. the floor, yeah. So that difference between machine yeah. and and man. And the thing about this film that's interesting is, I mean, quite rightly, Linda Hamilton and Arnie get a lot of kudos for this film. But, you know, I, I think let's shine a little bit of a light on Michael Bean because he does a great job. And the thing is, he basically has to spend the entire film, literally the entire film, delivering exposition. Yeah. But I think, And I think it's really easy to... It's what I call the William Shatner syndrome. A lot of people make fun of William Shatner, you know, the, I talk like this. And a lot of that, if you go back and watch Star Trek, that isn't how he performs. A lot of that was stuff he did afterwards and he's kind of media persona. Um, But what Shatner did in Star Trek is he had to, a lot of the dialogue that he had was really dull and was Mm. really techno babbly and stuff and yeah. it, and it but he brought this incredible energy and personality to it and I think that's what Michael Bean does here I think that that just the sheer earnestness and sort of urgency oh, I think he does that, a that great he brings job. the role yeah. and, and he's great in a lot of other stuff as well I mean he's great in the abyss you know his performance in the abyss is one of the great 80s mm. movie performances He's great as uh, Johnny Ringo in Tombstone you know as the sort of the the, the villainous oh, uh, God, gunslinger yeah. And um, and he, and he's great here, and he reminds me in a lot of ways. I think that if this film was made now, Reese would be played by Timothy Oliphant. Yep, I can. They, they, that. They've both got a really similar kind of energy about them. 
Although I would say Michael Bean, as as well as having that kind of sort of never surrender, going to fight to the end attitude, he's also got a vulnerability to him. Yeah. Um, that he's in. You, yeah. you feel like he's in over his head for the entire film. But also that that he kind of he knows he's he's sort of fighting to his death. He is going to die in this. He's sort of well, he's kind of made his peace with that well, a wee bit. He almost plays it like a child mm. because you get the feeling that he's never had a life. I mean, you get the feeling well, it's implied that he's a virgin. You know. Well, yeah. And I think that that's part of his character. The this idea that the world he lives in doesn't afford you. A life, you know, that he yeah. probably he was born into, it, so he would never have had a childhood. So ultimately, he exists in this state of like arrested development, mm. um, and I think that that comes across really well, particularly as as a because it's interesting because he's like technically he's the hero of the film in the conventional eighties sense, mm. but he doesn't play it like that at all. No. And I think it's interesting that. You know, come with come with me if you want to live and all that kind of stuff. But if you look at by the end of the film, Sarah Connor's leading and they're holding hands and she's pulling him along. Yeah. You know, even before he's injured, there's this sense that he's not a tough guy. And I think the thing that's good good about that is it re- that really reinforces the unstoppability of the Terminator. Yeah. You know, is if you had a uh, and that's why in the sequel they had the sense. To, to not try and out Arnie Arnie. They went the other way mm. uh, with Robert Patrick, you know, yeah. and just had somebody who was more sort of lithe. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that that was a smart move. But um, Definitely. Yeah, because he's, he's incredibly menacing in a different way, Robert Patrick. You know, the fact that he can, you know, melt through bars and, yes. you know, all of that kind of stuff. Well, literally. I mean, he's literally mercurial, yeah. you know, and yeah. that, that's how he plays it. I like the fact that when Michael Bean, and this has only occurred to me watching it now because this is an 80s movie convention, you don't question it. When the cops go after him, they're basically going after him for not wearing a shirt. He literally <laughs> does, the cops appear and they're like, hey, you. Yeah. And they go after him. And it's like, there's like four squad cars. And it's like, I mean, eventually it's, it does escalate and he grabs yeah. a gun and you know, I get all of that. But. It's like we are arresting you for not wearing a shirt at night. It's like okay, it's weird. You absolute troublemaker. Yeah. We see um, we're introduced to Sarah Connor looking all kind of Carly Simonish Very in her issues. jumpsuit yeah. and her moped and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Uh, and her hair—it's funny because she was in the Beauty and the Beast TV series. Do you remember that the one with Ron Perlman played the, played the Beast? No. It was a big TV series in the eighties. Um, but she almost looks like she's got like. Leon own hair in this as well. She's got oh, great eighties hair. So. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's all about the feathering. It is, and there's so much. You know, we've got jumpsuits, we've got Walkmans. I mean, mm. Christ, I'm surprised somebody didn't have a fucking Rubik's cube um, <laughs> on the go at one point during this. Cabbage um, patch doll. And, and it's and it's funny when a lot of the time when you get these eighties movies that are about time travel. Back to the Future is the other one. They often feel so incredibly eighties. They almost look like films that are made now. Trying to elicit the eighties, mm, yeah. like like the, they've gone back in time to that, mm. and um, and I, mean, I just want to mention as well because I, 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 it reminds me at this point because this is super eighties. I mentioned obviously the um, how influential the Terminator was, and mm. I want to just unpack that for a minute because 
one of my favorite low bu- low budget like really low budget films of all time is a movie called Trances. Yeah. Um, it was the first movie that Helen Hunt was ever in, and that's a knockoff of Terminator. But he's a really fun. B- I think you'd enjoy Trances. He's a yeah. really fun eighties B movie that knocks it off. But but uh, but the influence element of Terminator, I'd say first of all, you've got. The science fiction idea of it, just the idea, and it it existed in literature before, and there were similarities actually with the short story that Harlan Ellison wrote. That's why on the end credits you see Get thanks the to the acknowledgement mm-hmm. because it, it was pretty close, and I think they were a bit worried, so they did it. And Harlan Ellison he wrote City on the Edge of Forever, a very fi- famous episode of Star Trek with time travel, the one with Joan Collins, right? Um, and so they wanted to reference him just so they didn't get in any trouble. Um, but the idea in a film of somebody going back in time to kill somebody's ancestor was mind-blowing Yeah, at the time. I remember when this film came out, people were just like... So, I mean, just that, just that one thing is really influential. That's before you even get into all of the idea around malevolent AI yeah. and the computers taking over. That's another element. Then you've I got mean, all, that's way ahead of its time. Absolutely. Then you've got all of the aesthetic stuff, the kind of the endoskeleton and all that yeah the um guns with laser pointers just one thing after another after another after another in this film that you hadn't at the very least this film popularized you you were seeing here also it was continuing that trend in the 80s of using film noir elements in science fiction i mean the, the club they go to is called tech noir and that's no, no. You know, Reese is wearing a trench coat, you know, throughout yeah. the whole film. So, you know, and you had Blade Runner as well, which used that kind of um, almost techno Asian neon, but yeah. also with an undercurrent of like the Maltese Falcon and like Philip Marlowe and, and that gumshoe detective yeah, kind of and, thing. Yeah, and, you know, everything happens at night. Absolutely, know. yeah. Yeah. And it's LA of, as well. You there's know. not a lot of daytime shenanigans going on. Yeah. You know. And the cops, the way that the cops are, you know, swigging on bottles of Pepto-Bismol and constantly smoking and mm. all this kind of stuff. And I picked it, the wrong day to quit sniffing glue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And But I just think that, that if all of these elements of this film, you would see cascade off into films. You know, to this day, we still see it, you know. And I think it was, uh, you know, it was... It was almost the first, I don't know, cyberpunk. You brought a lot of cyberpunk elements into it. You know, I don't think we'd have the Matrix if it wasn't for 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 this film. You know, the mm, um, yeah. the, the two thousand and five Battlestar Galactica, the, the whole idea of the Cylons rising uh, up and taking over. Yeah, yeah, but also being you know invisible and, and oh, hidden, yeah, you know, 100%. behind that the, the machines and all, all that kind of stuff. But, and and. To take us back to our current rewatch project, they have that in Agents of Shield. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and, with the AIs and you know, and, and you know, and and the, but the film, like all of these things, it did grow out of an existing genre. But I think that what it did was Cameron brought a real director's eye and some awesome, super cutting edge science fiction ideas. And laid that on top of the unstoppable killer slasher movie trope. Yeah. It's interesting that when you see Terminator 2, what he does there is he ultimately removes those slasher movie tropes for the most part. Mm. So, you know, the character hunting them down is hunting them down much more in an action adventure way. Yeah. Than, and so what you see then is you see 
the purely the James Cameron version. And that's not a criticism. I mean, you could argue that, you know, a lot of the rough edges were shaved off the original Terminator of Terminator 2. But that's balanced out by the fact that that Cameron is uh, innovating. Mm. He, he he's innovating in so many other areas in that film. Yeah, that he actually feels more like an evolution than a dumbing down. Yeah, or a sanitizing. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, so we get um, her working at the fast food place, which has the worst customers, and they're so understaffed as well. I know, and they're assholes to her. Yeah. Yeah. We get we get another callback to James Cameron's past with Roger Corman with the casting of Dick Miller as the uh, gun shop owner, mm-hmm. and we get the laser sight, the Uzi nine millimeter reference as well. Uzi that was the nine gun. millimeter. Uzi nine millimeter. Uh, and I like the fact the first real Arnie Arnie ish moment because you got to remember Arnie was still developing his persona at this point. He'd done Conan the Barbarian and a couple of other bits and pieces, but the whole I mean this is this film. And it was funny, I had a bit of an argument with Ian and Noel on on what's up about this because I'd said that The Running Man was the film where Arnie really first did the I'll be back thing. Right. Um, like in the in The Running Man, there's a bit where the, the character says to him, um, you know, you're going to die. And Arnie turns around and looks at me, he's like, I'll be back. And then he comes back and murders him. Whereas here... This is before it, but in this, it's used in a slightly different car. He just sort of says, I'll be back. Yeah. And then the joke is he comes back in the car. Yeah, yeah. But it's, but I think that, so technically, yes, the Terminator is the first time it's used, but the running man is the first time it's used in the context that I think people think of it, you know, the I'll be back. And then after that, it became his catchphrase. But the first time it was used after this, where he kind of refined it, mm. was in the running man. And when people do the I'll be back, they always start thinking of a Terminator because he said it. But it's a little bit like Beam Me Up Scotty. It's one of those things where the incarnation of it is, trust me, trust me. <laughs> um, even Ian and Noel came around to it when we had the conversation and they're stubborn bastards. Um, Are they as stubborn as I am? Um, no. <laughs> um, but uh, but what I was getting at, sorry, was the, the, the Arnie was still developing his persona here. Uh, and a really early flash that you get of it is the bit where he starts loading the gun and Dick Miller's like, you can't do that. And he goes, wrong. And yeah. shoots him, you know. That, uh, My book. That gave me real commando vibes. Yeah. I lied. Yeah, I lied, Bennett. Um, so we get the, um, he goes to visit A, Sarah Connor, not the Sarah Connor. And we see on the news and all this kind of stuff. We see Reese dreaming of the uh, future. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, I like the fact that a lot of the machines have got that, again, that kind of Phil Tippett-esque stop-motion Ed 209 in Robocop yeah. sort of quality. And also it's worth mentioning that that there was a zeitgeist thing going on there because Terminator started and you one of the, the, other, the other films that you see the influence of that in is the genre blending of things like Predator is another example. Right. Obviously Aliens that, that Cameron would do later, which merged the horror, the horror sci-fi of... Alien, but with like the Arnie esque action, uh, and then of course you know Robocop as well, and there are a lot of similarities. Like a lot of the use, another big influential thing in Terminator is the use of robotic POV. You know the idea where you oh, they're yeah, seeing in the, all the writing yeah. that that hadn't really been done. They sort of Kubrick had toyed with it a little bit with Hal in two thousand and one, mm. but you know, and then you would see 
you know, Robocop would do the same. Predator with that that night vision thing, you know. Yeah. Um, you would, and a lot of the aesthetic of Robocop obviously was influenced by the Terminator, you mm. know. And also just the fact that the Terminator was an R-rated film with a lot of violence and, and bad language meant that that I think that it was more acceptable to make films that I think were seen as kind of kiddie fair, uh, but for adults. Yeah. And I think Robocop and Predator. Uh, and some of the other Arnie movies, like Total Recall, I think they benefited from from the door being pushed open by um, by this. Yeah. Another bit of influence that you can see that happened on the Terminator was in the post-apocalyptic world. There's a little bit of Mad Max, like the cars, like yeah. when you see Reese jumping into the car. Oh yeah, jumping. Yeah. He goes through. You know, they haven't the got. He feels very much like. The 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 movie view of what post apocalyptic looked like st- was still being heavily flavored by um, George Miller's Australian films, you yeah. know, like Mad Max. Yeah, with Ginger, her friend is the quintessential eighties chick friend. Oh, a hundred percent. You know, um, right down to the mad, crazy, full on here. Was she in? 16 Candles. I don't know. I don't think she was. I think I know who you're thinking of. But I think she's just a type she, of character. She looks exactly like yeah. Molly Ring was best friend. And this is another callback as well to the slasher movies that she kind of gets, her, her and her boyfriend get punished for having sex. Yeah. It's the classic thing where, you know, the, the couple usually, you know, not the, um, the, the well, they'll, have, they'll go and have sort of superfluous sex. It's, it's fine if you have romantic sex, yeah. but if you're having just frivolous Saturday night sex. Yeah, you're gonna die. You yeah, know. Um, and I I did like how they do like the fake jump scares. You know, with the lizard, but not a cat. With the lizard, when the boyfriend turns up at the door. Yeah, that's the classic one, isn't you it? Know, the guy be playing when tricks. he calls when he calls to speak to his girlfriend to start with, mm. and yeah, just uh, yeah, it was a very very horror genre. Yeah. Honra. Honra, yeah. <laughs> uh, we see um, the two cops, played by Paul Winfield, uh, from Star Trek to the Wrath of God, uh, and um, Lance Henriksen uh, of Millennium Fame. We see that the... Um, That's what I know him from, Worm in the Ear. Yeah, Worm in the Ear guy, yeah. Mm. Sarah Connor's date is a no-show, uh, so she goes out. Uh, we see Reese following her. Uh, the phone book killer. That's a real... You so know that's what they'd call him. Yeah, of course. A fair play to Sarah Connor as well. But just saying, fuck it, I'm going to go out, I'm going to go and get a pizza. Mm. You know, I don't need no man. Going to go to Pizza Hut. Yep. She sees she's been followed. She goes to Tech Noir, and this is where I've got all my notes about, you know, the fact that it's, it's you do all those genre elements. Mm. Uh, people knew had a fucking party in 1984. They did. They've got the Pat Benatar going, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're having a great time. It's a big cage that you've got to get into. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah. They do the classic um, person can't hear something because they've got headphones on yep, uh, yep. gag as well. Uh, they, they, he kills Ginger, the Terminator does, obviously, uh, and he hears the voicemail. Um, I, I like the fact that, and this is a really interesting touch, that every time we see Arnie, we go into like slow motion, mm. and it kind of gives this sense of kind of creeping inevitability almost. Yeah. A bit like the way that zombies move slowly, and you, you know, that makes them even more threatening because they're like, a, it's like an avalanche. It's mm. like, they'll get you. They'll get you there like, eventually. Yeah, they will, just, yeah. yeah. And um, Un- unrelenting. Exactly. Mm. There's a shootout. Uh, come with me if you want to live. Uh, that, and it's funny as well that 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 will become. It's a bit like I have a bad feeling about this in the Star Wars movies. Yeah. I think every Terminator film has somebody saying, "Come with me if you want to live." Yeah. 
Um, is I'm it, pretty <laughs> sure in Terminator 2, it's it's Arnie, isn't it? Who says yes, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. In um, Dark Fate, it's Sarah Connor. Right. But I like it in um, The Simpsons when they do the parody and it's home and it's like, come with me if you prefer not to die. <laughs> Just can't quite get it right. Yeah. Um, so we get the POV like Predator. I like the fact that when Arnie gets burnt, his hair gets burnt and his eyebrows get burnt off, yeah. which gives him a freaky look. And this is a real... James Cameron seems to like these odd little details that something will happen. And then it just sticks around throughout the entire film. And one of those I always think of is The Abyss. And The Abyss, you've got to remember, is one of the all-time grueling film productions. It's like Apocalypse Now. It's one of those films where it took them several years to film under incredibly difficult conditions and people nearly died and everybody wanted to kill each other by the end. But they ended up with this absolute you know, masterpiece of a film. Mm. And there's a bit early on in the film where the Ed Harris characters just had an argument with his ex-wife. And he goes into, and they're on the they're on the rig, and it's got the rig's got those toilets that you would you, that you would get where it's just um, like you'd get on a rig or on a submarine or something where they're just full of that blue liquid. Yeah. And he gets his wedding ring out and he throws it down the toilet in anger, and then he comes back and he feels bad about it, so he grabs it out and puts it on his finger. And later on, it saves his life. There's a door closing, and he puts his hand out and it stops it. It's like mm. symbolic, but. He gets the blue dye on his arm. Right. And for the rest of the film, it's like a three-hour movie. For the rest of the film, he's got a blue arm. And there's no reason for it. Yeah. It's just that Cameron is a real stickler for realistic detail. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, he's like, underwater, you have to use this particular thing to keep things sanitary. And it wouldn't wash off. He's like, you'd have, if you put your hand in there, you'd have it on there for weeks. Yeah. Um, so Ed Harris had to spend like a year Every day they had to blow paint his arm blue. But that's Cameron's kind of OCD mind. Yeah. And I feel like the detail of Arnie looking just a bit weird to give him, give him this extra kind of kind of creepy vibe for the rest of the film, that's a really idiosyncratic yeah. sort of detail that's, that's very cool. in keeping with, with yeah. Cameron's personality. So Kyle lays it all out, says that she's being targeted for termination, talks about cyberdyne. And this is what's great is... Cameron's doing a real George Lucas here. He's world building. Like he talks about Cyberdyne, but that's it. He mentions mm-hmm. Cyberdyne. So that little scrap's been dropped. And I, I, there's no way that Cameron could have known this film was going to be successful and that he'd get to do a sequel. He was probably just wanting to get it finished. But that's a real gift. You know, that's a real seed that could be sowed. Yeah. And this is another thing that was really big, a big part of science fiction films at the time was this idea of evil corporations. Like, you've got Cyberdyne. In the Alien movies, you've got the Whalen yutani Corporation. Yeah. Yeah. And that just seemed to be a, a real thing. He mentions that he is from one possible future. And I think that's quite a, an interesting distinction that would, again, serve them well in the in the sequels. Mm. Yeah, that it, it's not written yet. Exactly. It what happens. But it also means that if you do sequels that you want to ignore... You can. You can. <laughs> it tells that there's been a nuclear war. The machines have come over, uh, have taken over. He talks about how the defense network computers became sentient and that John Connor's their leader. We get a nice little gun car chase. Um, She talks him down so the cops don't kill him. And I like the fact as well, this is something that you wouldn't get if this film had been made by somebody who wasn't taking it seriously. Because you've got to. Even if you're making a crazy film, you've got to have that sort of, I'm going to say it, the rissimilitude. And the moment that makes me say this is she's really upset that her friends are dead. Yeah. Like, she's sobbing her eyes out because she's found out that her friends have died. Yeah. 
I think in a lot of other films of this era, that just wouldn't even have been referenced. She no. wouldn't have found she out. They wouldn't been, have bothered spending time on it to well, humanise her. she would have been her. in apocalyptic mother of the leader mode. You know, she would have already gone sort of wartime. Yeah. If it was done later, she would already be hardened to any kind of emotion. She'd be fully on board with, you know. Yeah, it'd be all or nothing, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's one of the things, and I've got to be careful what I say here. I don't want to come across as being like a pig or anything like that. But I think that it's great that we live in a time where there are so many strong female characters. But I think the problem that you sometimes have is you can have that Ray Skywalker syndrome where the characters are almost too perfect. Yeah. They're immediately amazing at everything because the filmmakers want to empower girls watching it to see yeah. these powerful figures. But I think sometimes that can rob characters of their arc. You know, Luke Skywalker failed a few times. Well, you know? I mean, the the reason I find Sarah Connor a, a strong character is because of her vulnerability. She She's frightened, um, but she still... Does what needs feel to feel the done. fear and do it anyway. You know? Yeah, that's yeah. what that's, I mean, that's that what is, bravery is. It's true strength. Well, you, you, you're not brave if you're not scared. No, if you're not scared, then that's not bravery. That's just you're I just don't even know what your it life. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, and I think that that's important. I mean, what it, it gives her depth. It gives her character depth. You yeah, know? absolutely. And that's just good writing. You don't want your characters to be one dimensional. You don't want them just not scared of anything or not affected by anything. Yeah. Otherwise, they're a Terminator. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And well, and you just don't, you can't relate, you don't invest. It's funny as well, I had forgotten that her Doctor from Terminator 2 is introduced in this film, mm. that Doctor Silverman. Um, we see Arnie with the great scene where Arnie's fixing himself as well. I remember that being a big deal at the time, like when he takes his eye out and he, and the whole arm thing where yeah. and you see that everywhere. Like, you know, Data in Star Trek The Next Generation, you mm. always get scenes where you'll see a bit of, that been exposed, and I'll never Again, forget in Agents of Shield. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. But I remember this is, and this is such a thing that Philip would do as well. I remember seeing this scene, and I remember I had this um, silly putty that was skin coloured, and I remember rolling it out into and flattening it, putting it on my arm, and then putting a bit of tissue paper on my arm and opening it up down the middle so you could just see a bit of it, and pretending to cut through it and like fix my Terminator circuitry when I was like. 10 years old <laughs> it was a thing i thought you meant you'd done that for philip for a minute i was like why would you show your son how to cut his arm open <laughs> yeah but because yeah. because he already knows <laughs> there's no point um i've got the note here about how michael bean brings really great energy to uh exposition mm. we see arnie pop on the um the sun the iconic sunglasses as well to hide yeah. to hide his eye to hide, to hide his lying eyes as the sun goes. I was goes. just going to say, you can hide those lying eyes. Yeah. The cop, very We are, aren't we? The cop tells her that she's safe because there's 30 cops there. This, we get the I'll be back moment. And this was a trope at the time as well, the whole car thing. Like, there's a bit in um, Sudden Impact, I think it is, the second Dirty Harry film, where there's a guy who's held up a bank and he's holding hostages and he calls Dirty Harry and he's like, uh, he's like um, I want you know, I want to get out of here. I want you to get me a car. And he walks out and the cop's are like, what does he want? And he's like, he wants a car. And they're like, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to give him a car. <laughs> and he just drives it through the front of that. And then this moment's very similar. I remember even as a kid when I first saw this, I remember thinking, ah, oh, it's a fucking Dirty Harry movie that is. My parents were like, language, Michael. <laughs> what do you do watching Dirty Harry films? It's like you weirdo. So, um, Go to bed, you fucking nightmare. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get to bed, you fucking toilet. Um <laughs> Me, um, oh, that accident man too. Oh my god, I'm, oh, oh, 
you'll hear me talk about this on the podcast before. There is some amazing Cockney banter <laughs> in this film. You, well, you, don't I, talk about it here. I'm not going to. But uh, yeah, it just made me think of it. Um, so he drives through. There's absolute chaos. And I think that this is a really influential sequence as well. Just the, uh, you know, the killing machine taking out a huge... You see it in every... I mean, uh, that um, the recent Harley Quinn movie's got a sequence just like this where... It's some people going through a police station, and there's, you know, yeah. it's, 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 it was very, very influential. And it feels a lot like, you know, Michael Myers, like when you see him walk past the door and she's hiding, you know. Yeah. And um, after this, she says to Reese that she doesn't want to know about the father, uh, who the father is. And he, he offhandedly mentions that um, he died before the war, yeah. uh, before everything went pear shaped. And that she taught her son how to fight. Uh, and she says, look, you know, I'm not that tough. This just doesn't sound like it's right. He gives her the memorised message from the son, which basically revolves around the conceit that the future's not set. He mentions, he does mention, though, that she she does a really good field dressing. So you get the feeling that there's some just in, inherent ability mm. that she's got, that she's natural, just one of those people. Natural skills. Yeah, and, and the mm. thing is, and, and I kind of believe that because I've always joked about how um, the greatest guitarist in the world is probably somebody who's never picked up guitar. You know, the idea of untapped talent. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but you, you, you don't know. Like, you hear about these people who just... I know it's not me. Who just try something and immediately realise that that's their, you know, for want of a better word, their talent. Yeah. Um, but you don't know until you give it a go. Yeah. And um, I think it's completely reasonable that this person could just be a natural leader and have all of these skills... But because of life and the fact that, you know, it's 1984 and she's a woman means that she's working she's a shit just job. She's not being in that position. Yeah, she's yeah. not, you know, um, maybe because of the, her family, she didn't get to go to university, whatever, you know. Um, yeah. And, I, and I, But I believe that. I mean, I've, I've worked in education on and off for most of my adult life. And you see that. You see people who come into education as mature students and flourish. And you just think, Christ, imagine what your life would have been if you'd had the opportunity to access these opportunities when you were 18. Yeah. You know? There's more future stuff than I remember, as I mentioned earlier on. It's I like the idea that they use the dogs to check for Terminators. Yeah. Um, I always joke that um, whenever somebody, particularly somebody who's anxious about it, gets handed a baby and the baby starts crying, mm. I'm always like, oh, they know. They're like dogs and Terminators. Yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> You're obviously evil. Um, one out. We see that... Um, he has the photo of her. Uh, we get the great Arnie, fuck your asshole moments as well. Yeah. Um, they go to the motel and she calls them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the, they make some plastic explosives, which gets them all sexied up. Plastic. Uh, and um, she of- says that he must be pretty disappointed. And uh, he said that he on the picture that he saw of her, she was really sad. And he always wondered what she was thinking about. Uh, and that he came across time for her, which is a pretty good line. Um and then they, they make love and conceive their child. This, I was going this, to say a lot of boob squeezing and hand-holding later. Uh, it's, it's funny, this, this sex scene, what I always think of when I think of this is the novelisation of The Terminator. I've told this story before, I think, not on this podcast, but is novel novelizations of movies, movie tie-ins, they were called, were really big in the pre-VHS era because it was mm. the only way you, you could see these films. And often, you know, the, these films, in America you've got the R rating where... You can go if you're under 18, but you have to have an adult with you. 
In the UK, you can't. If you're under yeah. 18, you can't go. Yeah. And, you know, maybe if you're like me and you had facial hair when you were like seven, you know, you were able to get in a bit. <laughs> but, but often, reading the book was the only way you could experience the film. And yeah. you were, if you were a movie geek, you wanted to do that. And I always remember, tie-in novels, they were always more graphic than the films mm. because they were novels and you, you could get kind of get away with that. And they're obviously, they were, they were aimed at adults because they were novels. And I always remember, I got the novel of this. I always remember page 82. The sex scene was on page 82. And I remember it got passed around the whole of my play. It was legendary. Page 82 of the Terminator. Um, pages 82 and 83 stuck together <laughs> by the time it had been passed back. But when, I mean, we were too young even for that. It wasn't like there was any of that going on. It was more just reading it and going, <laughs> like, you know, it was all like, you know, milky thighs, and, oh, you yeah. know, all that kind of like... Um, the heaving beasts. Yeah, heaving beasts, you know. <laughs> it, was, it was all very Jackie Collins, you know. Throbbing member. Um, but I, I always think about that, you know, with uh, with this. Yeah, there was lots, there was lots of throbbing going on. Yeah. And um, His his white-hot love pierced his <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That kind of thing, yeah. So we see the dogs kicking off. Um, and they, he gives chase on the motorbike. We see him get dragged by a rig, by a big truck. Uh, his robo face is showing through as well, and that's another one of those. And there's so many things that would be the one iconic thing in most films, yeah. a jostling for place here. Mm. And, and I said, like I said earlier, say what you want about James Cameron, including Ava- I include Avatar on this, but he's, just, he's got an eye for that shit. I mean, Avatar, again, I'm not a huge fan of that film, but we all know the imagery from that film. When you I've think not of seen Avatar, it, but I still know. You know the from Navi, it. the yeah. blue people, the mm. the environment. It sticks in your head. I mean, even like Titanic. You know, some of the images in that film stick with you. The arms out at, at the oh yeah uh, head the of mast the, head you know, at the yeah. yeah. It's just he knows how to how to frame these things. Mm. Uh, the truck explodes. Uh, we get a total uh, slasher film fake out. She's like, oh, "We did it, Kyle." It's like, oh, yeah, "Okay, you have to say that." And then Oz Skeletor comes back, stop motions himself to life. Yeah. Um, she. This is where I've got the note about she leads him pulling him along, and I think that you know she is definitely one of these great eighties and nineties tough female characters. Like I think you know, think of Sigourney Weaver in the Alien movies, Gina Davis in The Long Kiss Goodnight. Yeah. Um, Patricia Torman in the Night of the Living Dead, the nineties mm-hmm. like Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. It's interesting that the climax of this film takes place in a factory with automated robots. Yeah. And one of the things that sort of really dawned on me watching this was that. Think about when this was made and how, from a science fiction perspective, the societal um, anxieties that it was speaking to. Because people talk about this film in relation to fear of the robots uprising, you know, uh, computers mm. learning to think and taking over. But I think there's more to it than that. I think that there's, at this point, America was transitioning from being a manufacturing led a manufacturing industry-led country to being a service industry. Yeah. So you were seeing in particularly large urban areas um, a huge exodus out from the cities to the suburbs, yeah. which is why places like South Central Los Angeles sprung up the ghettos, mm. you know. And um, this was in the air. And I think that this anxiety about the mechanization of manufacturing and production industry was a really 
big thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this film came out the year that Ronald Reagan started his second term as well. And America was in some ways booming from a self-image perspective, but also was really starting to die on its ass mm. in the international market. And I think that there's a little bit of that going on here. Mm. I, I, but there is sophistication here because she uses a machine to destroy him. And we know that Cameron likes his technology. So I don't think that this film is explicitly anti-technology. No. I think that it's it's kind of it's about application of technology mm. and about completely removing the human element, the dangers of completely removing the human element. My my takeaway was not to put all your eggs in one basket. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and particularly, I mean, the other thing that was big in the air at the time was the Cold War. Yeah. You know, so people were worried, you know, Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood came out that this year. Films like When and, the Wind Blows and, and the Day After, stuff like that. Yeah, the fact that Michael Bean's character talks about the fact that the machines had worked out to look like humans and it's hard to spot them. So there's that real spy element to... You know, they're being infiltrated yes. and you can't spot these, um, you know, threats. Um, and the second film takes that idea Cold even War further, doesn't it? feel about it. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. The, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, and if you look at like the early stages of the Cold War, you had films like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, um, yeah. which were very much, I think maybe even the 1980s The Thing yeah. perhaps was informed by that. I mean, Alien, yeah, you know, as well. I mean, Alien... Alien had more going on there. I think there was the, the, the male um, fear of pregnancy and, mm. uh, and, and you know, all the gynecological sort of implications of that yeah. film as well. But um, so she, she, she jabs a grenade in the ribs, in his ribs. Uh, we see that Reese has died at this point. Uh, but Terminator comes back alive again. And she, of course, this was the era of the, you've got to say something cool when you kill the bad guy. So you're terminated, fucker. You know, that's yeah. the line here. Uh, I think that line's brought back in Dark Fate. I could be wrong, but I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I like the fact that he literally has his hand around her neck yeah. as he dies. Yeah. Like, it came that close. He really doesn't... He's, he's, he's not a, a, a... He's not a good quitter. No, no, he's not. He, he, he really sees things through here. He's kind of admirable, actually, yeah. in a weird way. You know, He's a completist. I, I just wish, you know, if I could manage a team of Terminators, that would be... Uh, <laughs> uh, should go there. What so, a thing to want. Yeah. So, uh, and we finish off with a nice little kind of portentous coda where we started to see her Dear becoming diary. the, yeah. Well, well, she's very much becoming the Sarah Connor that we see in later films yeah. at this point, you know. Yeah. She's on the road. She's at a desert gas station. And desert gas stations become, again, like I say, everything that you see in the later films is here. Mm. You know, it may only be for a scene. Mm. And in later films, I mean, there's a whole act in. Terminator 2, where it's just, you're, you're in that desert shanty town kind of environment, but it's all yeah. plucked out and kind of unpacked from from this film. Yeah. Uh, I, just, I love the fact she talks about how I could go crazy thinking about the paradoxes. Should I tell you because mm. that might happen and then you might not be born? And, you know, all the, so they, yeah. they acknowledge the kind of timey wind, wind of it. We see the kid take the picture of her. And this is, I think, the first time that we hear in a movie somebody say there's a storm coming as like a portentous. Um, oh, because that's a thing, isn't it? In movies, now, yeah, storms are always coming. You know, Stor- yeah, storms are always coming. Um, it's always, but, you know, 
nefarious. It is nefarious. Okay, so we 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 anything you want to add about this, Hannah? Before uh, no, I I just thoroughly enjoyed the rewatch. I I still declare that Sarah Connor is a great character. I do declare. I do declare. Strong, emotional, brave, vulnerable, just everything you want in a yeah. character. A little bit like Carly Simon. The other thing as well, under two hours. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. You know, in this age of two-hour, 40-minute um, bloody Transformer movies. Yeah. You know, one hour, 47 minutes. Perfect. Bish, bash, bosh. What are we talking about next time, Anna? We are talking about the pilot episode of Miami Vice called Brothers Keeper. The synopsis says, Miami detective Sonny Crockett reluctantly teams with New York City cop Rico Tubbs. He was a Miami cop. He was a New York cop. (laughs) When both of them end up pursuing a drug dealer who killed their respective partners. Awesome. I'm looking forward to that. I have not seen I, this in many years. I have not watched any Miami Vice. The, the, I think you will enjoy. I think you'll enjoy this. I think yeah, you'll have a good time. I'm with sure it. I will. Um, I think even if you don't like it on its own merits, I think you'll enjoy it as a kind of piece of pop culture history. I, yeah, I sort of feel like it's going to be a fun. But watch. at the same time, it's starring Don Johnson, who is one of the most charismatic human beings who has ever lived. So it's got oh, that going for it. He uh, gets away with the pushed up. Suit jacket sleeves. So. He does an espadrilles. Oh, my God. But, yeah, so that's just for now, guys. Quick reminder that we do appreciate feedback at rewatchprojectpodcast at gmail.com. Also, I noticed we are at 93 followers on YouTube. Come um, on, people. So, subscribers, sorry. So, yeah, if you listen to us on YouTube, even if you don't, hell, we do sometimes put stuff out on YouTube that isn't on the podcast feed. So, yeah. It's worth um, subscribing and get us up to 100 so we can claim that URL, guys. That would be really appreciated. We're nearly there. Uh, and also, please check out our friend shows. And we will also uh, appreciate reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We're going to go now because it's uncharacteristically late for us still to be awake. And I'm shattered. Yeah, me too. So uh, let's get the hell out of here. And I'm going to resist the urge to say, hasta la vista, baby. Uh, oh, um, but you did it. Uh, no, I, I'm not going to seek that low. But uh, we'll anyway, be back. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's. <laughs> we'll, we'll settle for that instead, then, shall we? Um, how about fuck your asshole? <laughs> Go for that one instead. Uh, I'll say I'll be back, but I'll say the um, running man version just to be uh, just to be a stickler oh, for detail. Uh, but we'll be back very soon, guys. Goodbye. See ya.